From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, please visit lean.org. Today, I am fortunate to be joined by Dr. Pat Greco, an educator and leader with 38 years of experience in education. We'll dive into her role as superintendent of Menominee Falls School District in Wisconsin, where she led a transformation of how students learn, how teachers teach, and how leaders create an environment of continuous improvement. LEI is fortunate to have Dr. Greco join our Lean Summit as a speaker next April in Carlsbad, California. To learn more, head over to lean.org. Let's get started. Okay, so hello, Dr. Greco. Thanks for joining me on the podcast here today. I'd like to get started by sort of framing things up with, um, I guess, back in 2011, when you were brought on as the superintendent of Menominee Falls School District in Wisconsin, uh, responsible for about 4,200 students and um, you know, facing a number of challenges, uh, everything from uh, suspension rates being high, uh, poor performance, achievement gaps between um, race, ethnicity, income, uh, struggling to meet uh, federal performance goals under the No Child Left Behind Act, and also um, the, the advent of a new administration that at the time was uh, upending collective bargaining for public sector employees and perhaps instilling some fear, anxiety amongst the teachers that uh, you were coming in to lead. And uh, I guess I'd like to start by just asking you, what was it like the first day, the first week when you came on in this new leadership role? And Matt, it's a it's an important question, and I think one of one of the thing any leader going into an organization knows that their leadership is going to be determined based on how they behave and how they send that message of hope at the same time that they build that energy around um, this work needs really Mm -hmm. focused, targeted actions and and not sending the entire organization. You referenced from from a school setting, we had about 4,200 students. We also provide all community services everything from preschool swim lessons to senior center lunch. So the organization's delivery model is really about um, 15,000 customers, if you will. 4,200 of that are K-12 students because we run the school district as well as all community services. So when, when we're working around that leadership shift, there was a lot of fear. Um, the collective bargaining, as you mentioned, was going out. Milwaukee Magazine had named Menominee Falls as a high-spending, low-performing school district. We were good with some kids, and we had these disparities among um, our, our students with special education needs, our, our children of color. We are a very typical middle America school district in many ways. And we really had to shift that mindset toward improvement because on day three, you asked what that first week was like. I'm sending that second notice to families under the No Child Left Behind Act of your children would be better served someplace else. 
And hi, my name is Pat Greco. I'm your new superintendent. You know, so you're you're meeting that edge of building hope. The media had regularly featured Menominee Falls as underperforming, you know, and teachers are coming to work. Employees are coming to work every day with that public notion of you're not doing quite a good enough job. And we know with improvement, people come to work every day wanting to give their best effort. How do you organize the system to make that best effort provide outcomes and results? So coming in facing a lot of skepticism, a lot of fear, well, maybe not a lot of, but but some anxiety amongst amongst the people that you're about to lead. Um, and like you just said there, um, you can't really quell uh, that skepticism, that fear without delivering results, uh, actually solving problems. Um, what was, or can you give us an example of an early problem that you were able to tackle or the team was able to tackle that uh, began to sort of turn the tide and help people begin to understand that a shift was taking place in the district? Yeah, and, and obviously the first step is identifying what's important, mm-hmm. what does the community value, you know, what are those, those early indicators mm-hmm. that we know we have to define. You can't improve what you can't measure. Mm-hmm. And we have, to, we have to measure the important things, not a thousand things. Mm-hmm. So suspension rates, the gap in learning across our, our student populations, we were identified as high spending. You know, mm-hmm. So what do we get underneath that as far as that efficiency? How do we actually figure out where those big buckets of dollars are going and whether or not they're pro- providing the level of benefit in, you know, in improving outcomes? And then how do we build that mindset of improvement across the people? So that we're really developing that army of problem solvers. You know, we have we have roughly, you know, 500 full-time employees. We have a thousand, you know, including all of the temporary and summer help, and it, as we go into summer services with our our recreation, we have a big brain power there that if mm-hmm. we can tap into and shifting the mindset to improvement and the behaviors we'll be able to to really tackle a variety of problems. Those earliest ones were really getting underneath what was getting us flagged as underperforming, mm-hmm. tackling that, mm-hmm. and then building that infrastructure of improvement so that we can really thrive as a team. Well, let's uh, take an example of maybe one of those early problems. You mentioned uh, suspension rates. I read that yep. uh, over the course of your tenure, they dropped by 82%. That's a dramatic yeah. improvement. Can you explain? When we, yeah. yeah, go ahead. When we started, yeah, when we started, when you're thinking about the measures that matter, you're actually taking a look at what is, where are we atypically high in suspensions and where are our bright spots? You know, and what's mm-hmm. causing the bright spots to be bright spots and what are what's causing us with that, that level of the spikes in suspension. We were seven times higher than the state average. 
And, and part of it is we had no consistency of practice of the protocols that we were using and having that dialogue of what does that pathway look like before you're removing a child from the learning environment? How are you actually preventing kids from making that same error over and over and over again? How are you including the kids in that improvement process so that they understand what right looks like and what's going to cause that 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 consequence although consequence is really a never good never really a good learning tool how do you build the learning of what right looks like at the front end so that the consequence is needed less often so um that process of engaging with students, this totally fascinated me, um, not just in the context of what you just described in terms of, of, of um, you know, student behavior and suspension, but more importantly, around learning. Uh, you know, as, as a student growing up, uh, and I'm very fortunate, I went to um, some very good schools, but I, I cannot remember a time where I was actively in, engaged in, in developing my own learning plan as student but what you describe in the district during your tenure was just that students engaging with teachers and not just developing a learning plan but a methodology for learning so that what they were learning was the right stuff and how they were learning was continuously getting better can you explain how that process worked Right, and, and when you think about what we know about effective team behavior, you know, you, you want group norms, you want a clear direction, you want clear outcomes of, of what that team is supposed to accomplish, and then you want regular communication on how you're, how you're functioning as that team to achieve those outcomes. A classroom is just that. You know, so when you think about building that improvement cycle within the classroom, you want the goals in student language. You want to develop that class commitment and the, the mission statement of how we're going to work and learn together to be visible and evident and have the students engaged in creating that. You want the kids to understand where their current progress is and how did they set goals to actually hit that outcome and then give feedback every 10 to 15 days of what's working for them. You know, doing a plus delta, this is really helping me. When we do this, I'm more confused. So if you can help me get through that, I'll have a better chance, better ability to hit that, the expectations for me. Not every child is cut from the same cloth, and we know that. We've got some kids who are really strong early readers, some kids that reading is not natural for them in that early process. But having them actually identify where some of their barriers are, where are their confusions, will actually help set that that process of having the teachers know that and then shifting that next cycle of learning based on that. Having kids be really clear on whether or not they're growing and mm -hmm. and where that expected performance is. Because you've got kids on the higher end that may get an A, but really they could do much higher level of thinking because they're at that skill level. You know, so so the improvement process 
is really when we think about a plan, do, study, act, it's a natural condition matched with team behavior and what we know about how effective teams thrive with communication and benchmarking and and really having clear dialogue around that strategy and execution. So you're really creating effective team behavior within each classroom. So practically speaking, were, were I a student in a classroom at uh, Menominee Falls School and I'm, I'm meeting with my teacher about once a week or once every other week and I'm engaging with him or her about hey I'm struggling with algebra and the way it's being explained on the chalkboard is not quite clicking with me um, what can you, how would a conversation might might go because it's it's an interesting thing you you have the the classroom where everybody's learning together but at the same time you're developing not just learning plans but a methodology for continuously improving the learning plan for every single student could you describe a little bit about how a conversation might take place between a student and a teacher and the, the students individually will have their learning journals where they'll post their goals they'll do their reflection based on their progress that they're making on quick quizzes on um, project rubrics and you know really the major assessments so any part of that feedback they're actually doing part of that reflection within their learning journal the teachers will be taking a look at that feedback but also as a group they'll do a, a class plus delta of saying when we take a look at our overall achievement toward our goal what's working for us and the, and the kids get better and better and better at giving feedback and learning how to use their voice to explain what they need. And then the delta is really, here are some things that as we go into this next half of the unit, if we do these things more, it'll balance out the needs of the entire group. You know, because if I'm with 27, 28, 32 kids, I've, I've got to make sure I understand where all of them are and then collectively as a group, we've got to help help all thrive. That learning journal is so interesting because it kind of flips the typical manner education plays out because normally, at least in my experience, it was always the teacher who was responsible for assessing how I was learning and my classmates were learning. In this case, it's actually the student who's doing that. They're doing their own assessment of, of how they're learning, what's working, what's not learning. Um, so it's, it's, it's a shared responsibility, it sounds like, between the student and the teacher. It's not just purely the teacher's responsibility for figuring out how to improve this. It's also the student who's actively engaging in this process as well. And, and it also let kids, lets kids into the process. You know, we've had, you know, we've had um, individual edu educational plans for children since the 70s. Often, the children don't understand the goals. Mm. You know, so when we think about how do we improve outcomes for kids, how do we help kids reflect on what matters most for them? How do we help them use their voice and communicating that back to the teachers? That helps them not only be reflective, but also be really clear on when this happens, this really helps me. And when this happens, this really creates a barrier. Mm -hmm. I did a focus group with, with 18 kids that really struggle in school. 
And they said, you know, we are high anxiety kids. When you put us in group work hour after hour mm-hmm. after hour with peers that we don't have a relationship with, mm-hmm. that's really hard for us. You know, so designing, understanding what represents best practice, but really designing the instructional experience about where that child is at so that you can create that lift and get them ready for that group work. But that may not be their starting point. And designing it into every lesson, every hour, really does create a problem for some of the kids that are not at that point Mm. or really need that personalized method of delivery that can be built into that process so it's not so overwhelming for them. And so you you also talk about, so there's this sort of rapid cycle PDSA taking place inside the classroom, but then there's also a higher level PDSA taking place amongst the leadership and the board of the school district. Can you walk us through similarly, how did that process work and what were the desired objectives Uh, of that process? Well, like any organization, we started with the board and the leadership team on really what matters, what matters most, and we created the balance scorecard around that. Mm. So when we think about the measures that matter, we did that collectively as a group. And we know that that is a best attempt until you try to refine them. It took us a couple of years to really get And they're still working on it. You know, so we built, you know, we built that deep level of understanding around improvement and it's still imperfect, but we're getting better at understanding what matters most and then taking a look at how do we build the capacity of our leaders and our teachers in order to thrive if this is what's really important? How do we build that capacity for our children to thrive if this is really important? You know, so, so when, when we set the goals, we really are intentional of putting it, the goals into that, you know, we have big aims, we have our annual goals, but then really building those action plans into 45-day cycles so that we're really being intentional around what are we learning our way into? What do we have to shift in our behavior if we're really intending to make that type of a gain in in this year? If we haven't made it within 45 days, what are we learning from that that we're going to change? Or what are we learning that's lifting that we would then decide, you know what, this is creating a bright spot. What can we learn from that? And as we're going into our next 45 day cycle in the old process, you know, schools would have school improvement plans. They would design them for a year, you know, right around May, they'd pull them out to say, so how'd we do, right? That's not an improvement cycle. When you're going into improvement, you're intentionally building those short cycles, taking a look at what problems are there to solve and then identifying your prediction of if I do these two things, we believe this will create the lift and then measuring whether or not it made a difference. It wasn't just the teachers who were involved with this. You were involving every member or leader in the organization from the facilities department to the folks who manage the cafeteria to the to the folks who manage the, 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 the nursing department at the school. Um, how are they engaged in that process 
of learning and improving that you just described? Everyone was involved at the front end of, of determining what matters most for us as an organization. And then we scaffolded the balance, you know, the balance scorecards down to the division level, to the school level, to the grade level. And then obviously the students had their individual student journals. It isn't what's most important is measures are only important if they tie back to what we really want to improve. We want children safe. We want educators to feel like they have the ability to thrive. We want all of our children well-prepared for post-secondary. We want all of our children having options available to them for family supporting wages, to be able to pick areas of passion. So those are the things that we value as a community. So how do we design the entire organization around those values? And then how do we put measures in place so that we're really monitoring what's most important and whether or not we have to make a shift? We've gotten into a really bad habit in our, in our country of blaming mm. for lack of results, but not providing that infrastructure to really understand improvement. We've confused accountability with improvement. They're not the same. You know, so we're attempting people to hold people accountable, but we're not really building in that infrastructure for how do you understand the mindset of improvement? How do you align behaviors? How do you put into that, that building that flywheel so that it's moving? So you're building it around the conditions that matter to eliminate unnecessary hassle, to improve outcomes and solve problems and really celebrate the progress. You wanna align your goals, you wanna align your work behaviors and you really wanna align your processes so that they're working. You know, so when we looked at that early on, it was every division leader, every principal, the entire school board really going into that mind shift around improvement and then aligning our work behaviors so that everyone has the ability to learn and thrive together as a team. And to sort of demonstrate the, the power of that mind shift from um, accountability to improvement and also aligning people around a common objective. Uh, you talked about this case of uh, nurses and facilities people working together to improve, I guess in this case it was during flu season, and students were absent because they were getting sick, and uh, nurses and facilities people working together in service to uh, helping students not get sick so that they could come to school. Um, could, you, could you share a little bit about how that collaboration took place in service to that shared objective? Yes, and it was a, a beautiful example. So um, Julia Italiano-Thomas was our, our school nurse for the district, and Rick Spector is our director of, of facilities and, and um, operations. Both were deeply committed to safeguarding children and making sure that all of the conditions are positioned well within the buildings they started collaborating around where they were seeing attendance levels dip and it and watching that from school to school to school grade levels classroom areas 
when they would see a spike in a challenge and it particularly would come up during flu season, Rick would make sure that their custodials would shift their protocol from a light cleaning to a deep cleaning. So that automatically, we didn't have to wait until a third of the building or two thirds of the building was out ill. They were preventatively watching the data in order to put that protocol change into that deep cleaning. You know, so in Wisconsin, we know we're going to head into flu season. We know, you know, we've got particular challenges, you know, when, when illnesses spike, it keeps our staff healthier, keeps our kids healthier, helps our outcomes improve because kids are in school, helps our families because then they're not trying to balance whether or not they go to work or stay home with their child. And it, it helps healthcare rates across everyone. You know, so when we think in an improver's mindset as opposed to an accountability mindset, people come up with projects because they're problem solvers and they identify problems that are on the ground, real world problems on a daily basis. It's not something that I have to have to come up with because now they're skilled. So building that army of problem solvers is everything that Deming was talking about at really early on with systemic improvement, the 14 points, how do you actually think differently? And in having frontline workers see a problem and have the skill set to solve it, whether it's a child, a teacher, our, our facilities worker, our health room aides, that's really the work of improvement. And it's the work of learning your way into how to be better as an organization. So you talk about, um, that, that sort of gets at your definition of improvement, where it's not about uh, fixing a discrete problem project, but a mind shift um, in how you, and how not just you, but how an organization behaves. Can you tell us more about you know, your thinking behind, behind that, Dr. Greco, around your, your yeah, definition and, and of improvement? Yeah, the definition that spoke to me as a leader is as an organization, you behave as an organization. How do you eliminate unnecessary hassle for everyone, for your children, for your adults, for your stakeholders, for your parents, for your community? How do you solve problems as they appear and how do you improve outcomes? Well, the only way you can know that is really what outcomes, are, what are you trying to um, achieve, what barriers are getting in the way of people, and then how do you work together so that the problem solving is agile and quick? Mm. You know, so if it's something that, it, Matt, you see and you know how it likely could improve, giving people the permission within the organization of just do it. You make that change and then you let us know so that we can learn from that. If it's if it's a more if it's a, a more robust problem where the solution isn't clear, we'll put it into a PDSA cycle. If it's our wicked challenge, we'll put it right into a DMAIC team. You know where you're defining, you're measuring. So we've got those those ranges of skills, but really the just do it and the and the quick PDSA cycles is really 90% of the process if the people are skilled as problem solvers. So um, maybe we can talk about a person in particular 
who you saw had an especially um, big transformation uh, entering this new way of, of thinking and new way of working. Um, you mentioned, uh, I guess she was an English teacher, um, a woman named Liz Sparks. Can you tell us about how she as a teacher, maybe even as a person, evolved over the course of, of your time as the superintendent? And, and Liz is a great example because she'll, she'll self-reflect often on as we were starting, you know, education it is plagued with initiative fatigue. I'm coming in with the new superintendent and how is improvement any different than any other initiative over time that people have talked about, start and stopped, and then not had any results out of it. And Liz was at the high school level. She was the department chair of the English department. Um, she also was heavy in, in, you know, working with the negotiations team at the time. You know, so there was a ton of fear going on, you know, as I was starting as a leadership team. Part of what we had to stop as we were early on is we had to really create that clarity of what do we mean by improvement? What are we going to stop doing? What are we going to stop chasing and then build that capacity so that people can really be successful in understanding what we mean by improvement? You know, so as we got into it, Liz was learning the process like any educator wants to do a good job. She explained early on feeling confused and overwhelmed. And then once she saw the effect that it had on students, sharing what they're learning, asking for help in the areas where they needed refinement, making assessments bite-sized so that they aren't these great big measures, and really seeing that level of progress. It shifted how the department behaved together, shifted their results. So their big measures, their ACT scores, their big accountability measures have all improved, mm. but we weren't chasing those. We were really shifting that mindset for the measures that matter, the aligned goals, the aligned work behavior, so that the processes would align and actually create that lift. She is, she is fundamentally, she's always been a great educator. She's fundamentally a different thinker around improvement and around student learning than she was early in the process. I'd like to kind of turn back to the student side. Again, we, we talked about this a little bit, but in my experience, and I think this is fairly common across most schools, but schools are, are configured um, or not configured. Well, actually, in some cases, they are configured because they, they do have, in the high school I went to, they had the honors class, they had the B class, and then the C class or something like this. And students are set up so that they're categorized as high achievers, mid-level achievers, and low achievers. And that's just sort of what they are. There's no opportunity, well, not opportunity, but the, the, structure, the system isn't set up for the B students to get to the A class or the A students to get to the honors class. They're sort of sifted and filtered at the beginning, usually through some sort of standardized test. At least that's how it was when I entered um, high school. And uh, that's where you where you play the game uh, over the course of your time in education. Now, what, what you're talking about um, through the process that you just described that, that Liz and the other teachers would go through, along with the students, of having an opportunity to improve um, the, 
the learning plan and how students are learning, that sort of categorization, in a lot of ways, it seems like it would it would disappear. And it's not about high achievers or low achievers. It's about just increasing the capability of all students, no matter where they stand at the start of the race. How big is that of an issue in obstructing student performance in education right now? I, I think it's an it's an issue it's an issue across our profession it's a, it's really when you think about how do we actually identify targets of success and how do we provide the right tools and supports to help all kids thrive mm. without building in barriers that are artificial gates that kids can't pass through mm. you know so so when we line it up in a rigid system and it ends up tracking kids, and if, in, if I were an early non-reader, you're really positioning kids to end up, you know, it, that's where the research says if they're not reading on grade level by third grade, you're really positioning kids not to be successful long-term. Mm. At the same time, how do you learn what barriers are impacting that child in order to remove the right barriers for the individual kids? How do you provide that range of tools for the kids that are highly accelerated as well as the kids who are really struggling? And then how do we learn together as a profession for when these conditions happen, these protocols likely will get some of those barriers out of the way. I've learned a ton from healthcare around protocols that matter around care. You know, we know hand washing majorly changes the spread of infection rates. We know we need to know in, in education those simple protocols that matter most that get barriers out of the way for children. You know, and we're just on the tipping point as a profession. In, and we have to stop looking at the tools in packaged initiatives because that's what bleeds the bandwidth. It's what eats up all of the resources. It, it creates that level of barrier because then people get exhausted and nothing's really creating a lift in outcomes and people stop you know, implementing because this is just a thing after another thing. You know, so it is a huge issue in our field. We also have to stop, I believe, over-investing in great, great big heavy measures that can't be turned into improvement cycles. So these you know, are so things like, as like standardized test scores or in, the, in Massachusetts right. and, we have MCAS. Yeah, and we need, we need the vital few, but but we're investing a whole bunch of resource of organizations and states and accountability systems around these great big measures. And then we have no leading measures and we're over implementing, you know, so when you think about waste, we're wasting, you know, time on measures that aren't broken up into leading indicators. Mm. You know, and that, and then we don't have the skill set to create that level of lift. You know, so I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-assessment. I'm pro-improvement measures that are really gonna create those short cycles of improvement. 
And and in any we the technology is there right now. It's just access to the te- right technology to do those quick checks and then to actually put it into that next cycle of improvement to understand where both that skill set and that desire. I'll be honest with you too. We overthink some areas as it has to be instructionally linked. Some kids we've seen huge gains just by including them in the dialogue because kids shut down and are no longer engaged. It may not be a reading issue. They've just checked out. They may have the intellectual capacity to be successful, but they're just not interested in being part there, of we have mm. we have put barrier after barrier after barrier we've left kids mm. feeling like they're they're less capable you know we've we've stopped expecting kids to be successful so if we don't expect it why would they you know they look at our face and they can see whether or not we believe in them mm. right so if kids have checked out doesn't matter quite frankly what measure we're going to put in front of them mm-hmm. so you know yeah. in order for them to re-engage and thrive you know so all to say in in that short cycle time period yeah. Yeah. you know we've had teachers working on progress with kids who have improved their attendance rate improved their academic outcomes and and helped them feel like they were learners for the first time within a 45-day cycle this is hard work and it's intentional work, but it's really around that mindset of how do we help everyone get into that problem solving and that improver mindset so that everyone keeps that sense of hope and keeps on working toward thriving. So um, how pervasive do you think this method of educating students is and it's, it sounds like that uh, Menominee and your work was really the, the tip of the spear, um, but what do you think it will take for education, you know, fairly you know, slow-moving uh, industry uh, to make this big change, this mind shift change um, that you're talking about? Yeah, and I, I think part of part of education is viewed as a slow-moving industry. I think one of the things that I've learned over my 38-year career is we're not slow-moving. We're we're quick to hop onto mm-hmm. that next title. Yeah, yep. We're slow to learn what really creates improvement mm-hmm. at scale. Mm-hmm. You know, and and really we're built on an infrastructure of really not understanding systemic improvement, organizational change, how to engage people, and really how to design measures that will will create that lift. And, you know, we bleed resources by hopping from one thing yeah. to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. You know, so, you know, in, in the time period that, you know, over the course of my career, if I knew then what I know now, you know, if I were starting over again, you know, I would have invested heavily in my own learning just around improvement. You know, I had improvement coaches. Um, I've learned a ton from improvement coaches 
that helped my leadership, helped my understanding, helped my ability to work with others. You know, keeping that focus on it's about your people first and really building that deep commitment to service. And your results you're getting right now are really tied back to your current strategy and your execution. If you can understand that, you can improve your results. Well, you made an interesting point that um, entering as the superintendent, you had two masters and a PhD, and none of those uh, effectively prepared you for leading an organization. They were all on the instructional side of education, the, the, the technical manner of how you teach students, but not about how you lead and organize people. And um, a school, a hospital, uh, again, you made this great point that those are often a community's largest organizations and the people who are assigned to lead them often don't have the training. And I went went to business school and uh, the scary thing there is they don't even teach management in business school. (laughs) They teach uh, finance, accounting, strategy, marketing, operations. They don't actually teach you a whole lot about how to actually manage people. In that point, Matt, you know, in my PhD, I learned about finance, I learned about instruction, I learned about, Mm. you know, methodology of research. It's really that systemic backbone. I happened to pick um, how to make improvements stick at scale as the base of my question for my dissertation, which Mm. led me to Deming's work, Mm. right? There was not an example Mm. at that time of Deming's work in place in a school district, so, you know, and it was just starting within that improvement methodology within healthcare, you know. So when I say I've learned a ton, it caused, you know, I spent a career mm. trying to cobble together where does this learning sit, and how can I learn from it. So um, as we uh, kind of come to a close here, just thinking back to. The, the matter of the problem to solve, uh, improving student outcomes in education. What, what, is, what is your next step toward solving this problem? I think the problem to solve is mm. really how do you design organizational excellence at mm. scale? Mm. You know, and then how do you use an evidence-based leadership framework How do you build that capacity within the people? How do you draw the attention of a profession to stop the chasing and really shift the attention to improvement? How do we help our policy leaders understand, you know, that accountability does not equal improvement? You know, and and that's where I affectionately say when we have, you know, when, when we have children born in crisis, they go into a neonatal intensive care unit. We would never label children in a, in a high-performing neonatal intensive care unit an F unit because they're struggling. But yet that's the conversation we have coast to coast around education. You know, we have, we have exceptionally committed people. We have to match that commitment with the skill set. And we have to stop the chase and we have to help policy leaders understand. We have to help education leaders understand, community leaders understand. It's really about building that capacity for evidence-based leadership at scale and building that coaching and support around the educational improvement. I believe it. I've seen it. I, you know, I'm, I now have the good fortune of 
of working nationally with organizations that, you know, um, South Louisiana Community College six years ago was an underperforming community college that now was just put in the top 150 mm. in the nation mm. and is eligible for the Aspen because mm. they put evidence-based leadership to work within their organization. That's the work of improvement. I can't thank you enough for joining me here today, Dr. Greco. Um, there are fewer problems more important to solve than the one that, that you're tackling. I look forward to uh, hopefully seeing more examples like the one you just cited in Louisiana as students, uh, as schools that, that are dramatically improving the, the results that they're providing to, to their students. So just thank you so much for joining us here, Dr. Greco, and thank you for also joining us at the summit in Carlsbad, which I guess will be in a few months in April. So um, I really yeah. look forward to meeting you. In I'm person. looking forward to it. Yeah, that'll be great. I am too. Um, thank you so much, and uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing you in April. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Greco for joining me today on the podcast. As always, thanks to Emma Ripp and Lori Moniz, producers of WLEI. And thanks to you for listening. To learn more from Dr. Greco and other lean leaders at LEI Summit, head over to lean.org summit to register. Thanks for listening. And if you have a problem you're tackling and willing to share, shoot us an email at pod at lean.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.